0: Well, when we think about fear, I bet we probably think about a lot of different things, don't we? Because what we fear the most is different for everybody. For some, uh, when they think about fear, it's standing on top of a really tall building, looking all the way down. Right? For some, it's uh, needles at the doctor's office, which always seem bigger and longer than they actually are. If you're frightened by those, uh, some people fear a loss. They worry about losing everything, their financial security. And then, of course, you have the old standbys, right? Snakes and spiders and all the creepy crawly things at night. Some people are afraid of small enclosed spaces. Some people are afraid of the dark. Some people are afraid of flying on airplanes. Creepy clowns at night, right? If you're like me, you think about fear... You think of pretty much anything that has to do with math. I still have nightmares about college algebra, which, by the way, I'd like to point out I haven't used once since college. I understand the whole concept of broadening a person's horizons, but if you go all the way through grammar school and all the way through middle school and all the way through high school and you still hate math... I'm pretty sure it's never going to be on my horizon, so please don't make me take it in college. But of course, that's not the way it works, is it? My point is this. There are a lot of different things that we think of when we think about fear, and yet one of the things that most of us probably do not think about when we think about fear is, is God. In the Bible, it says God is love, right? It, it says He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our peace he is our dwelling place he is light and life and salvation right for those of us who know him we know that we're saved by a grace that we do not deserve and we cannot earn and so it seems unnatural to us to associate that same God with fear And yet Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus himself said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him. He's not talking about the devil. He's talking about God. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10.28. The fact is, the Bible talks about fearing God well over a hundred times. And of course, when we talk about Uh, the fear of God in church we usually talk about things like reverence and respect which isn't wrong but the truth is when the fear of God is talked about in scripture all different words in those ancient languages are used in different places to describe that fear and in fact even the same words uh, in different places can carry different meanings okay the the biblical languages are far more nuanced than our modern English and so yes When the Bible teaches us to fear God, it is referring to a profound awe and reverence and respect, but in a very real and very visceral way. At times, it is also referring to people being utterly terrified, dreadfully afraid. The difference between those two types of fear of God for us lies in the kind of relationship that we have with him, all right? Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is addressing believers and followers of Christ. We're to worship him with reverence and and, awe. and by the way, both, both of those words, reverence and awe, in the ancient Greek can also be translated as fear. And so we as believers are to worship him with reverence and with awe because he is a consuming fire, which makes complete sense if you think about it. Consider how we approach fire. We certainly fear what it is capable of, right, if we don't maintain a proper relationship to it experienced negatively fire can hurt it can burn it can destroy it can take away uh, our life right for some fire is terrible experienced positively fire keeps us warm it cooks our food it fuels our transportation it lights our birthday cakes right some more than others Uh, fire makes s'mores possible Right? It makes camping fun. It sustains life. Fire is wonderful. You understand, fire can be terrible. Fire can be wonderful, depending upon our relationship to it. So, what does a healthy fear of fire look like? Of course, it looks like dread for what it can do when our relationship to it is negative and yet at the same time it looks like reverence and awe and wonder and respect and appreciation for and dependence upon it when our relationship to it is positive. Okay, If your relationship to God is adversarial, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then when you encounter Him outside of repentance, you would be right to be dreadfully afraid. However, if your relationship to God is based on his redeeming love and grace through our faith in him, then we may well still be dreadfully afraid when we encounter him, depending on the type of encounter, right? When the apostle John, Jesus' favorite, encountered the Christ in his glorified state, John wrote that he fell at his feet as though dead. In other words, astounded and terrified by the overwhelming reality of being in the very presence of Jesus Christ in all of his power and glory, John blacks out. He passes out on the ground before the Christ, and yet because John was a follower of Christ, because he loved Jesus, he says that Jesus laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last revelation 117 and so even though john experienced that same dread and terror before the lord that so many people who do not know him have jesus says it's okay john you don't have to fear me that way because you are one of mine which is exceptional news for all of those who follow Jesus Christ, however, that in no way, shape, or form excuses or exempts us from the other kind of fear that God described in the Bible. The kind where we are so astounded by him, so awestruck just to be in his presence, so reverent before him that he becomes the focus of all our attention. He becomes the source of all of our joy. He's at the center of every single decision. He's the purpose behind everything that we do. He's the the motivation that gets us up in the morning and the drive that keeps us going throughout each day. He is the sum total of everything that we long for in this life. In short, we become utterly consumed by him. That is what it means for the follower of Christ. Christ. To fear God. We revere him so much that everything else in our lives pales in his presence. You see, our our problem today is not that we just don't love God enough. Our problem today is that we don't fear God enough. Because if we were truly seized by an awestruck wonder every time we encountered Jesus Christ, number one, we wouldn't fear anything else. And number two, we would love him more than everything else. Honestly, we should be asking ourselves, do we really fear God today? Are we, are we as consumed by him as Peter was, who did not consider himself worthy to die as Jesus had? And so, according to the early church fathers, upon his own crucifixion, he announced, it is time for you, Peter, to surrender your body to those who are taking it take it then you whose duty it is i request therefore executioners to crucify me head downwards in this way and no other and then while hanging upside down on that cross he gave a final speech and he died do we really fear god Are we as consumed by Christ like Ignatius of Antioch was, the first century church father who was taken to the Colosseum where Christians were strapped to hot iron chairs and made to run between gauntlets of wild animals that would tear at the person until they were brought down and eaten alive by those animals? knowing that was his fate. Ignatius wrote these final words in a letter from Smyrna. He said, it is not that I want merely to be called a Christian, but actually to be one. Yes, if I prove to be one, then I can have the name. What a thrill I shall have from the wild beasts that are ready for me. I hope they will make short work of me. I shall coax them on to eat me up at once and not to hold off as sometimes happens through fear. And if they are reluctant, I shall force them to it. Forgive me. I know what is good for me. Now is the moment I am beginning to be a disciple. May nothing seen or unseen begrudge me, making my way to Jesus Christ, come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil, only let me get to Jesus Christ. Wow, do we really fear God? Do we revere him the way that Queen Esther did, who, knowing she would probably die for approaching the king without being summoned first, but decided to go anyway in order to save God's people, she simply stood and said, If I perish, I perish. Do we really fear God? These were men and women who had such a reverent and awestruck Healthy fear of God that they feared nothing else. Do we fear God like that? Do we get up every single day thinking, if today is my last, may every breath that remains within me bring glory to His name? Only let me get to Jesus. Do we really fear God? Are we awestruck in His presence? Or are we intimidated by this world? Do we really fear him? Are we willing to give everything to him or are we holding on to everything that we can? Do we really fear God? Are we we so captivated by him that there is no temptation in this world that could even begin to captivate us? Do we really fear God? That's what our story is. Is addressing today what happens in our lives when we truly learn to fear God in a way that actually changes us. So, we're going to continue our sermon series working our way through the book of Joshua. And typically, in this story, God is teaching us through Joshua and his people, and yet, from time to time, just as it was with the Rahab in chapter 2, we learn some paradigm-shattering life lessons from the other characters in the story, and that is the case today. So let's turn there together where we left off last week, Joshua chapter 9, and we'll begin by reading the first two verses. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So the word is out. In Canaan about all that God has done so far for his people. He miraculously held back the waters of the Jordan so that all two and a half million Jews could cross over safely into the land of Canaan. Then he miraculously gave Jericho into their hands, which the Israelites completely destroyed according to God's command. Then they did the same thing to Ai and most likely to Bethel as well. And so These other kings, knowing that this was probably just the beginning for the Israelites, they gather together and form one massive fighting force to try and defeat the Israelites before they can do any more damage to the other cities in Canaan, which brings to light quite clearly the disposition of these other kings and their people toward the Israelites and their God. Okay, These pagan kings obviously no longer feared the God of the Israelites. They they did at one time uh, back in chapter 5 right after the crossing of the Jordan. Joshua says that the same people's hearts were melting for fear of what the Lord had done for his people. But now that's all changed because of the sin of one man. You remember, Achan is disobedience to God's command and the ensuing loss that came at Ai on their first attempt. The Israelites were now considered by their enemies to be beatable as far as they were concerned, and so they no longer feared the God of the Israelites. If they had, they would have also understood that gathering to fight God's people now was nothing more than a death wish. Just as the first five verses of Psalm 2 instructs us, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. If they believed, there was absolutely no chance of winning. They wouldn't bother fighting. They would, they would give up and leave or ask for terms of surrender or do what Rahab and the Gibeonites did and become a part of Israel, as we'll see. But the one thing they certainly would not do, if they feared the Israelites' God, is to try and defeat his chosen people. So they had a fear of losing their cities but not a fear of the God who had already given those cities to his own people. In other words, they had fear. It was just fear in the wrong things. And the truth is that's just as common today as it was then. Okay? Having no fear of God breeds fear in us for everything else. Because all of us have fears. Everyone has fears, and we all submit those fears to something. But when we have a healthy fear of God, as Jesus said, we don't have to fear anything else. Let's keep going. Verses 3 through 15. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that uh, what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, They on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks from their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you you live among us how can we make a covenant with you they said to joshua we are your servants and joshua said to them who are you and where do you come from they said to him from a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the lord your god We have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provision in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. These garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So Gibeon is the uh, modern-day village of El Jib. It's about six miles northwest of Jerusalem. It came uh, From it came the Hivites or the Gibeonites. It's a people group that originally migrated to Canaan from Anatolia. That's modern-day uh, Turkey, many centuries, way back before the Israelites ever arrived in Canaan. So their cultural identity couldn't be more different from that of the Israelites, and of course, when God commanded his people to dispossess the current residents of Canaan of their land in Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2, the Hivites were included in that command, because according to Deuteronomy 7, 4, God knew that if the Israelites allowed other people groups to remain, that they would turn away your sons from following me, to serve other gods. So the people of God knew they had a mandate to spare no one in Canaan on their conquest because all of the current residents were considered karim. That's the ancient Hebrew word that referred to things that God had devoted to destruction. But not only did the Israelites know all of that, apparently the Gibeonites knew it as well because they pull off... One of the most elaborate hoaxes in all of the Bible. Okay, we learn from the beginning of the next chapter that Gibeon was no ordinary city. Joshua says Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. It was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors so the mighty men of valor from the royal Hivite city the great and powerful city of Gibeon go down to the local landfill and they find the most worn out beat up good for nothing discarded items of clothing and sandals and supplies that they can find and then they scrape up old expired stale food from the dumpster behind the local Ingalls food that isn't worth eating so when they come limping into Joshua's camp at Gilgal, it will look as if they've been traveling for a very, very long time over a great distance through tremendous hardship. When actually, they just strolled in from Gibeon. It's 3,300 feet higher in elevation than Joshua's camp. So they take a leisurely stroll, it's only 19 miles, literally downhill the entire way into Gilgal, less than a day's walk. They convince Joshua and the leaders of Israel to make a covenant with them, which Israel was permitted to do with anyone from outside of Canaan under the law in Deuteronomy 20, 10 through 18. And of course, verse 14 explains why the leaders of Israel were so easily fooled by the Gibeonites, because they did not ask counsel from the Lord, which seems especially confounding to me, given the fact that they just went through this at Ai, where they attacked the city of Ai without seeking counsel from God first. And as a result, they were soundly beaten, and yet here they are again. Relying on their own wits apart from the counsel of the Lord. And they end up getting duped into making a covenant with their next door neighbors. Verse 15 says to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And because in ancient Israel covenants or treaties were made with the utmost seriousness. This covenant was fully binding even though it was achieved by the Gibeonites through deception. So obviously not a wise move on the part of the Israelites at all, but incredibly wise on the part of the Gibeonites. In fact, in verse 4, when Joshua says that the Gibeonites on their part acted with cunning, the word cunning there in the ancient Hebrew is the word ormah, which here means prudence or subtlety or wisdom the same word that's used in Proverbs 15.5 and Proverbs 19.25, which describe orma as a positive quality for someone to have. The point being, Joshua recognized and even admired the wisdom of the Gibeonites, or he wouldn't have used that particular word to describe these people that he was supposed to destroy. So why were the Gibeonites so wise? Verse 9 tells us that. They said to Joshua, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord, your God. You see, the one true thing, the only true statement they made in this whole ruse reveals their true posture toward the God of the Israelites. They feared him more than anything else. Unlike the other kings in Canaan who were amassing their armies to fight against God's chosen because they did not fear God. And unlike the Israelites themselves, at least in this instance, who failed to do the most basic thing. They failed to seek the counsel of the Lord first. They were being foolish because they did not fear God the way they should. And so they make a binding covenant with foreigners with implications for many generations to come as we'll see. So believe it or not, the Gibeonites, of all the people in this part of our story, feared the God of Israel more than the rest of them, and as a result, they were the only ones who exercised great wisdom in this life and death circumstance, which actually should surprise no one because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. King Solomon, one of the wisest human beings to ever live, a man who knew more about wisdom than anyone else in his day, wrote, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 9.10. You see, when you fear God to the point that you give Him deference in all areas of your life, you start making decisions based on what He can do rather than on what you can do precisely what the Gibeonites did here they they made a decision based solely on what they knew God could do because they had a healthy fear of him on the flip side when we make big decisions based solely on what we can do we take God right out of the equation That's what the Israelites and these pagan kings were doing. They removed God from their decisions and the result in every case were incredibly foolish decisions that cost them dearly. Okay, when when you have a healthy fear and irrepressible reverence and awe for God, you include him in every decision which results in wise decisions. But when you don't fear God at all or very little, then you don't seek God, which means you exclude him from the decisions that we all have to make. And of course, some of those decisions affect you and the people you love for generations. I just had a woman tell me last week, she came up to me and said, I realized I had made some decisions recently, she said, that caused her and her family tremendous heartache. And she said to me, I realize now it's because I didn't seek God before making those decisions. She said I thought I already knew what was best, so I didn't bother to take time to seek him first. Okay? The the fear the fear of God that we're supposed to have is such a profound respect and reverence and admiration for him that we seek him first in everything which is when you begin to make decisions in your life based on what God can do instead of what you can do okay every single time Joshua and the Israelites tried to do something big based on their own wisdom and what they thought they could accomplish on their own they failed every single time and yet When they did something based on God's wisdom and what they knew he could do, he showed up in big ways. And as a result, they experienced success every single time. Look, if you're tired of constantly wondering what you should do when you have big decisions to make, if you want to consistently make the best decisions for your life and for those you love, then you have to get to a place in your relationship with Christ where there is such an all-consuming sense of awe and wonder and reverence and respect for Him that you never make any of those big decisions in life without seeking Him first and relying on what He can do instead of trying to rely on your own wisdom and what you think you can do. That's what the Gibeonites did. And I don't believe Joshua would have written it into the story the way that he did if he hadn't learned a great lesson about wisdom from the very people he was meant to destroy. And it is a lesson for all of us. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Let's keep going. Verses 16 through 21. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders, But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. So the cat is out of the bag. Uh, The Israelites find out that they've been tricked and so they go up to the Gibeonites whose city was made up of at least four uh, towns, all of which are mentioned in the Benjaminite tribal allotments later on in the book, which were all clustered together, uh, again, northwest of Jerusalem, about 19 miles from Gilgal. And so the Israelites go up there to confirm that the rumors are true and of course they are. The Gibeonites are their next door neighbors. And so immediately the people of Israel want blood. Remember, God's command to the people was clear. They they were there to devote to destruction all of the Canaanites. And so this, this decision to live in covenant relationship with the Canaanites was unthinkable for the Israelites. But it was also irreversible. Like an arrow shot from a bow. What they had done could not be taken back. And so the leaders of the Israelites will not allow the people to avenge the deception that has been leveled upon them. In fact, as we'll see in verse 26, it says that Joshua delivered them, meaning the Gibeonites, out of the hand of the people of Israel. So this wasn't a matter of, you know, the Israelites simply complaining. No, they were out for blood. But Joshua stopped them in order to honor the covenant ill-advised as the covenant was. And so just as the Israelites will now have to live with the consequences of their actions, so too will the Gibeonites. More specifically, even though Canaan uh, was chock full of polytheistic cults, because the Gibeonites chose to fear the God of Israel alone, they will now live and not die because the fear of the Lord leads to life. All right, again, we learn from King Solomon who wrote, the fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Proverbs nineteen twenty three. If this verse describes anyone, it describes the Gibeonites as we'll see next week because not only do the Israelites not kill them for their deception, but they won't allow anyone else to harm the Gibeonites either. And so because the Gibeonites feared God, they not only get to keep their lives, but they are able to rest satisfied without being harmed. You see, fearing God, honoring and revering and respecting Him does not ensure us a trouble-free life, but it does ensure us a life that overcomes that trouble. Jesus said in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome this world, John 16, You see, the prosperity gospel says that as a Christian, you should have perfect health and a perfect bank account and things should go perfectly your way. The gospel of Christ says that although as a Christian you live in the same imperfect world as everyone else and will have to walk through a whole lot of imperfect circumstances throughout your life, the one who is perfect will be with you every single step of the way, which means according to Jesus you can not only have life, but you can have it abundantly even in the midst of your troubles because he protects us from harm. The prophet Jeremiah, while under great persecution, said, The Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Jeremiah 20, 11. God promises to be with us and to protect us, but that's going to require us to have a healthy fear of him. Why are uh, obedient children obedient to their parents? Because they have a healthy fear of their parents. They respect and revere their parents, and the result of that is they get to experience their parents' protection and life in abundance. While on the other side, the reason disobedient children are disobedient, at least uh, in the moment, if not ongoing, is because in that moment they do not have a healthy fear of their parents. They do not respect and revere their parents as they should, and the result of that is they remove themselves from their parents' protection. And in the process, they can endanger their own lives, or at the very least, bring harm to themselves. Uh, anybody in here remember Evil Knievel? You remember him? If you're my age or older, you remember Evil Knievel. He was like the coolest guy on earth at the time. He was this stunt man. And he'd wear this really cool outfit and sometimes a cape. And he'd get on a Harley, no less, and jump over Greyhound buses stacked end to end and all sorts of crazy stunts. And I used to watch him on television when I was a little boy. And all I wanted to do was be like Evil Knievel. So I was in uh, my parents' living room one day. I was just a little guy. And I'd run across the living room. I had my cape on. And I would dive and I would land on the couch because I wanted to be like Evel Knievel. And so every time I would do that, I would back up and get further and further away from the couch because I was trying to do like Evel Knievel. He always had to add one more thing, right, and jump a little bit further. And so my parents were in the next room and they turned around and saw me and said, Robbie, don't do what you're doing one more time because you're getting too far away from that couch and you're going to fall and hurt yourself and I stood there for a minute and thought about that and I remember clearly thinking Evil evil isn't afraid of anything <laughs> I'm going to do this one more time so I backed up further than I had been up to that point and I took off running I launched myself through the air and I came in low and my face connected with the corner of that wood-framed couch and split my head wide open. Had to go to the hospital, brought in a surgeon. They had to do skin grafts and stitches and put my whole head back together. It was a mess. I had to wear an eye patch the whole nine yards. The, the uh, doctor said to me, boy, if it had been one inch over, you'd have lost your eyeball. You She'd probably obey your parents. Right? All because in that one moment... I didn't have that fear, that respect, that reverence for my parents that I should have. And so in that moment, I removed myself from under their protection and harm came to me. And I'll tell you, it's a lesson that I will never forget. Okay, it's the same way with God. It is the fear of God that actually leads us to life. In fact, you cannot have Truly abundant life without an abundant fear of God. Let's finish the story. Verse 22 to the end of the chapter. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God." They answered, Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So Joshua confronts the Gibeonites and asks them, hey guys, why did you do what you did? To which they expressed their knowledge and fear of the Lord just as Rahab did. And as a result, they are grafted into God's people just as Rahab was. And and by the way, when Joshua says to them that they are under a curse, they are in the sense that they have been assigned to serve the Israelites in perpetuity. However, and this is a huge however, they're assigned to serve in the house of God, which without question Or exception was always a blessing and an honor given to those who would serve in the house of the Lord no matter what their job was okay the sacrifices and ritual uh, washings at the sanctuary required a great deal of wood and water so Joshua says to the Gibeonites from now on providing that wood and water is your job okay but but to serve at the altar of God it meant that the Gibeonites were no longer rejected by God. On the contrary, they're now being fully assimilated, fully grafted in among the Jews, just as Rahab was, which means they're now recipients of God's grace, just as Rahab was, and just as much, in fact, as the Israelites were. It's no wonder they responded to Joshua's curse with hate whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. Because they understood that they were now becoming fully accepted into Israel's life and worship and receiving actually a great honor by serving at the altar of the Lord. Uh, George Bush, not the president, uh, the 19th century Bible scholar, And professor of Hebrew, he's actually distantly related to the President's Bush. But in 1852, long before they were here, referring to the so-called curse of the Gibeonites, he wrote these words. They were hereby brought into a situation where they would naturally acquire the knowledge of the true God and of his revealed will. Were made to dwell in the courts of the Lord's house. Were honored with near access to him and the services of the sanctuary. And thus placed in circumstances eminently favorable to their spiritual and eternal interest. You see the fear of the Lord brings blessing and honor. This assignment for the Gibeonites at the altar of God was not the result of a curse. It was the result of a healthy fear that they had for the God of the altar. And so in their humility before Joshua, they gladly accept this new assignment, which was actually a great blessing and a great honor. King Solomon wrote, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Proverbs 22, 4. Do you know that the Gibeonites indeed became servants at the tabernacle just as Joshua had commanded and they were provided for and protected as a part of the family of God but not only that Gibeon even became a priestly city the Ark of the Covenant often stayed at Gibeon in the days of David and Solomon at least one of David's mighty men was a Gibeonite and God spoke to Solomon at Gibeon in first Kings 3 4 the Gibeonites were among those who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem with Nehemiah after the exile now what part of that sounds like a curse No. This is a beautiful picture of what happens to men and women when, regardless of our background, regardless of our upbringing, regardless of our associations, regardless of our mistakes, regardless of our sin, regardless of our past, when we throw ourselves down at the foot of the cross in humble repentance and reverent, awestruck fear, in an instant, His grace floods our lives and he says to us you are no longer a stranger to me you are my child and from now on I will fill your life with blessing and honor as you serve me all the days of your life this is what the world needs more of today followers of Christ to understand that we cannot love God like we should if we do not fear God like we should Because it is only when we are utterly seized by an awestruck wonder in the presence of Jesus Christ that we no longer fear anything else and we begin to love him more than everything else. That is when he becomes the focus of all our attention. That is when he becomes the source of all of our joy. That is when he is at the center of every decision. That is when he's the purpose behind all that we do. That is when he's the motivation that gets us up in the morning. And that is when he's the drive that keeps us going throughout each day. That is when he becomes the sum total of everything that we long for in this life as we become utterly consumed by him. That's what it means for the follower of Christ to fear God. We revere him so much that everything else in our lives pales in his presence. And then what follows is wisdom and life, and abundance, and blessing, and honor, when we truly learn what it means to fear God. Let's pray.